Welcome to The Free Will Show. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Sear. And I'm your other host, Matt Plummer. In this episode, we'll talk about Frankfurt cases, thought experiments made famous by philosopher Harry Frankfurt. They try to call into question whether we really need alternative possibilities in order to have free will and be morally responsible for what we do. Our guest in this episode is Carolina Sartorio. And as always, if you have any questions that you'd like us to address in our Q&A episode at the end of the season, feel free to reach out to us through our website, freewillshow.com, or through social media. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, uh, Dr. Carolina Sartorio. Carolina is professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona, and she's published many articles, uh, not only on free will and moral responsibility, but also on agency more generally and on the metaphysics of causation. She also has a book called Causation and Free Will, published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. And I just learned it's recently come out in paperback. Uh, So thanks for joining us, Carolina. Could you start by telling us and our audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in working on free will? Yes. Hi, guys. Um, I guess I've always been interested in the intersection of two areas in philosophy, metaphysics and ethics. I did my doctoral dissertation on the topics of causation and moral responsibility and the connections between them. And then that led me naturally to be interested in problems in the philosophy of action, and in particular, uh, problems about agency and more specifically moral agency. And the problem of free will is uh, a central problem in the philosophy of action, and it has to do with both metaphysics and ethics, uh, because it concerns our position in the natural world, who we are and the relation to the rest of the world, Uh, what kinds of beings we are, are we like other natural beings, or are we different in some important respect, and thus how we can act freely and be morally responsible for what we do, if we can at all. So um, this is a fascinating old perennial problem in philosophy that, of course, we care deeply about. So I wanted to see if I could shed some light on it, make some sort of contribution. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Well, our topic today is going to be Frankfurt cases. Can you explain a little bit to us about what the main target of Frankfurt cases are and then explain a little bit about what a Frankfurt case is? Sure. So the main target of Frankfurt cases is the classical or traditional picture of free will, uh, which is basically captured by... um, the so-called principle of alternative possibilities, uh, sometimes abbreviated as PAP, principle alternative possibilities. And and this is a very natural, intuitive view of free will, according to which having free will is a matter of having options to choose from. And these are the alternative possibilities that the principle refers to. So it must be the case, uh, in order for us to have free will, Um, that we could have acted other than we did. This is the branching paths idea of free will. Um, It requires that at least at some key points in our lives, uh, we have these branching paths to choose from. And if you reverse the principle of alternative possibilities, which again says um, free will or moral responsibility require uh, alternative possibilities, you get... um, if there's just one single path, 
then you can't act freely. And of course, the thought there is if there's just one single path, it seems like you're forced into that single path mm. and thus you can't act freely. So let's just illustrate with some examples. Uh, if somebody points a gun to your head and asks for your money, uh, you're being coerced into giving them your money. It seems like you're uh, forced into that single path. That's the only reasonable alternative you have in that case. And as you don't act freely when you hand the money, or if somebody slips a drug into your drink and that drug uh, forces you to act badly, then uh, same thing. You're forced into that uh, course of action. So you didn't have alternatives. You didn't act freely. So this picture of free will was um, pretty much universally accepted before uh, Frankfurt, before the publication of Frankfurt's 1969 paper on moral responsibility and alternate possibilities. Um, pretty much everybody accepted it. And this includes both compatibilists about free will and incompatibilists about free will. So um, compatibilists are those who believe that um, are having free will and are being morally responsible is compatible with the truth of determinism, where determinism is the idea that given the full state of the world in the past, including the remote past, and the loss of nature, there's just one way in which the world could have evolved, and that includes the behavior of every human being. So compatibilists believe that that is compatible with our having free will and our being morally responsible. And then incompatibilists, of course, are the ones who believe that that's not the case, that if determinism is true, we can't act freely and be morally responsible. So pretty much everybody accepted this idea that PAP captures that uh, freedom requires alternative possibilities and moral responsibility requires alternative possibilities. So compatibilists uh, used to say, well, in the relevant sense, even if determinism is true, you still have alternative possibilities because the alternatives or whether you have alternatives um, is not settled by uh, the full past in the remote past and the loss of nature. That's not what determines whether you have alternatives in the relevant sense. Whereas, of course, incompatibles believe that that's not the case, that in the relevant sense, you don't have alternatives if determinism is true. So whether PAP, the principle of alternative possibilities, is true or not, is really central to this really important debate um, in the free will literature, which is the debate between compatibilists and incompatibilists. And in particular, it's a lot easier to be a compatibilist about free will. So to believe that you can have uh, free will in a deterministic world if it turns out that PAP is false. So uh, because even if uh, determinism ruled out alternatives, uh, that wouldn't necessarily mean that we can't act freely in a deterministic world. So that's why uh, Frankfurt's uh, paper was so significant because of the uh, key relevance that it had for the compatibilism-incompatibilism debate. Thanks. That's very interesting. So maybe now we could ask what exactly is a Frankfurt case? So what does it uh, allegedly show? How so? And maybe you could give a, an example of a Frankfurt case. 
I guess the general definition of a Frankfurt case is it's uh, a case that is designed to show that we can act freely and be morally responsible without having alternative possibilities. So there are examples that allegedly show that we can have free will uh, even in the absence of alternative possibilities, which again is something that makes the life of uh, competitors a lot easier. Right. So that is the, the, what they are trying to show. Uh, and before I describe uh, an example of a Frankfurt case, if you don't mind, I'll start by describing the um, underlying reasoning that Frankfurt was using in that paper, which will lead us to uh, the description of a Frankfurt case and to an example. Yes, that sounds great. Yeah, go for okay, it. Okay, good. So, <laughs> so the thought that Frankfurt had is that... Um, PAP, again, the traditional classical view of free will, is a very intuitive, natural picture of free will. But it's, in fact, based on an illusion. It's just an illusion. It's a mere appearance. So the Frankfurt cases are examples that uh, are basically attempts at disarming or dismantling that illusion. Uh, So the thought is PAP appears to be true and only appears to be true because it's just an appearance, it's just an illusion. Because in typical cases where um, we can't do otherwise, so where our behavior is inevitable, it turns out we don't act freely. We don't act freely because our acts have the wrong kinds of causes. So the causes that uh, bring about our behavior in those cases turn, turn out to be precisely the factors that make the behavior inevitable. So in cases where we can't do otherwise, as a matter of fact, we tend not to act freely because uh, our behavior is caused in the wrong kind of way by the factors that make the behavior inevitable. So to use the examples from before, where um, somebody points a gun to your head and coerces you into handing the money, or somebody slips a drug into your drink and forces you to act uh, badly, uh, the very same factors that make it the case that your behavior is inevitable are the factors that are causing your behavior. So you're basically only handing the money because somebody's pointing a gun to your head. Hmm. And you're only acting badly because somebody slipped a drug into your drink. Um, so that's the thought then. Uh, when we can't do otherwise, when there are no branching paths, uh, that tends to go hand in hand with the lack of freedom because the behavior has the wrong kinds of causes. So that results in the illusion that the branching paths are needed for free will. Now, Frankfurt says it doesn't have to be like this because those factors can come apart from each other. So the factors that um, make our behavior inevitable can come apart from the factors that bring about our behavior. Although usually they tend to go hand in hand, we can imagine cases where they don't. And in those cases, we see the truth about the matter, which is that we didn't need to have alternative possibilities to act free. So necessarily, uh, those cases are going to be quite artificial. 
Because in normal cases, in real life cases, uh, again, when we can't do otherwise, we tend not to act free. So those artificial cases that are designed to show what matters to free will are the Frankfurt cases. Uh, so the thought is, imagine that uh, Mary lies to Susan, her friend, and she does so uh, uh, for her own reasons, so she's a bad friend, and she lies to her friends all the time. So those are the causes of Mary's behavior. Now, as it turns out, there are other factors that uh, make her behavior inevitable, that those are not the causes in the Frankfurt case. So those factors stay purely inactive in the Frankfurt case. They're passive, they're not active. So um, in the most popular version of uh, a Frankfurt case, one of the examples that Frankfurt himself um, thought of, um, the factors that make it inevitable uh, are basically encapsulated in the figure of of an evil neuroscientist, somebody who is very powerful and very resourceful. So he has uh, secretly inserted a chip in the agent's brain, in Mary's brain. And with that chip, he can uh, basically do two main things. One is to monitor the agent's um, deliberation and thinking process. And the other is he can intervene if needed um, by uh, making the deliberation go in a certain way in order to guarantee that the agent makes the choice that he wants her to make. So he has inserted this chip into Mary's brain, which guarantees that if she doesn't decide to do it on her own, then she will still end up lying to her friend, Susan. So um, how does that work exactly? Again, there are different versions of these cases. In one version, he uses a prior sign that he knows is reliably connected with the agents making the choice on her own. So imagine that whenever um, Mary is about to lie to her friends, she blushes. So in this case, the neuroscientist can see that Mary is about to decide to lie to her friend on her own because Mary just blushed at the relevant time. So on that basis, he decides, I don't need to intervene. She's going to do it on her own, which is what I want. So that's what happens. Right? So in the actual case, she makes the choice on her own. Uh, after having blushed, she lies to her friend Susan on the basis of her own reasons. The neuroscientist never has to intervene. So the thought is, these cases show or suggest that PAP is false, that an agent needn't have alternative possibilities in order to act freely and to be morally responsible for what they do. Uh, because these are cases where the agent, on the one hand, can't do otherwise due to the presence of the neuroscientist, which guarantees that she's going to make that choice no matter what. And on the other hand, she is intuitively free and morally responsible when she makes that choice, because she does it on her own, on the basis of her own reasons. Uh, So that's what the Frankfurt cases um, are supposed to show and how. And again, um, 
part of the reasoning that Frankfurt um, had in this paper is that these very same Frankfurt cases or the reasoning that leads to the Frankfurt cases can explain why PAP seems so intuitive and they help dismantle that illusion, which is just an illusion. So it's an illusion that can be explained away, just like when you think about, I don't know, a visual illusion, right? So you put a pencil in water and it appears to be crooked mm-hmm. when you look at it, right? And you can't help but look at it and it's crooked. Right? It appears to be crooked, <laughs> but you know it's yeah. not, in fact. Uh, with um, PAP, something similar happens. So in normal circumstances, the factors that um, turn our behavior, our behavior inevitable are the factors that make the agent act. And of course, in those cases, the agent doesn't act freely. So that results in the illusion of BAP, according to Frankfurt. Thanks. That's helpful. I think a lot of people think of Frankfurt cases as simply um, presenting a counterexample to PAP, just showing that this necessary condition on freedom and responsibility that a person and agent have alternatives, um, that principle is false because here's a case, a Frankfurt case, where an agent lacks alternatives and yet seems morally responsible. But I think it's helpful that you're pointing out that maybe the cases do more than that. They attempt to show um, why a principle like PAP would have been so attractive in the first place, why it's merely an illusion. Mm -hmm. So thanks. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for explaining those. I've always found these cases fascinating and in an intuitive way, really compelling, but not everybody agrees, right? So there's still a lot of people who haven't been convinced. What are some of the main objections that people have raised to Frankfurt cases? Right. So there's been several objections raised. Um, Here, I guess I'll focus on one main type of objection for the most part. Um, Given how interesting the debate about PAP is um, for the compatibilism-incompatibilism debate about free will, I'll talk about a, a kind of objection that an incompatibilist in particular could raise, right? Because again, an advantage that rejecting PAP has for compatibilists is that it makes their lives a lot easier. So um, an interesting thing to think about is how an incompatibilist would respond. And in particular, I guess I'll focus on uh, an incompatibilist reply to the prior sign type of case that I described before, where Mary blushes right before she makes the decision to lie on her own. Um, So the objection uh, that I'm thinking of right now um, basically goes as follows. We would still need to fill in the details of the case just a little bit more, right? So once you introduce this assumption that there is this prior sign, the blushing, that acts as a reliable indicator for the neuroscientist about what the agent is about to do on her own, Uh, The question arises exactly how should we think about the relation between the sign and the agents making the choice on her own? So there are basically two ways in which we can think about that relation, depending on how we vary the details of the case. On the one hand, the relation can be so reliable that it's deterministic. So basically, whenever 
Mary blushes right before uh, making uh, a certain choice, the blushing in the circumstances guarantees that she's going to make the choice to lie. So that's a deterministic relation. Um, but we can think about it as a less reliable, but still pretty reliable relation, which would be an indeterministic uh, relation. So the objection goes, either way, there is a problem that shows that um, Frankfurt's um, uh, objections to PAP fail, or the Frankfurt cases fail. So if we think of the relation between the prior sign and the agents making the choice on Caron um, as a quite reliable but still indeterministic relation, then it seems that Mary could still have done otherwise, that she still had uh, alternative possibilities after having blushed. It was open to her to still uh, make the opposite choice. So, of course, if she could have done otherwise, then this isn't a case that shows that she can be responsible without any alternative possibilities. So that's one option. And the other option, remember, was to say that the relation was completely deterministic. Um, So what happens in that case? Well, if it's really deterministic, if she couldn't have done otherwise after having blushed, then the incompatibilist could say, but, but then she's not morally responsible because the factors right before she made that choice that were completely out of her control, right, determined that she would make that choice. So there are deterministic factors outside her control that guarantee that she will make that choice. So an incompatibilist would not agree that in that case she can be morally responsible. So either way, there's a problem This type of reply is uh, usually called a dilemma reply because of the particular logical form that it has. So in general, a dilemma is when you have uh, a number of options, but all options lead to the same end result. So here there's basically two options, either the relation is deterministic or indeterministic, but either way, Frankfurt uh, cases fail to show what they aim to show. So that's the dilemma reply that was uh, defended by several people, uh, a philosopher called Whitaker, among others. Thanks. That's helpful. So the, either way you go, either horn of the dilemma, you end up with the failure of Frankfurt cases according to the dilemma objection. But uh, on each horn, there's a sort of different reason for the failure. On, on one horn, the incompatibilist at least doesn't have any reason to think that the agent is morally responsible since we're on that horn, there's a deterministic connection between these uh, factors outside of Mary's control and then her uh, mm-hmm. telling the lie. But then on the other horn, it's not that she's not morally responsible. It's that, well, she still has alternatives because if we leave mm-hmm. indeterminism in there, some kind of indeterminacy, then we haven't gotten rid of all of the possible alternatives. Um, so what do, what do people who um, advance Frankfurt cases have to say in response to the dilemma defense? I don't know if you want to talk about any possible replies. Um, well, let me just talk about one. Um, there's more than one, but, um, I'll just talk about one here. Uh, so one thing that, uh, people have said is that, well, philosophers are very resourceful human beings too, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's not just neuroscientists who are resourceful. Right? So they have tried to think about cases that avoid 
this kind of objection. Hmm. Um, so basically what you want is um, perhaps a case that doesn't have any prior signs at all so that we can't then ask, oh, but what is the relation between the prior sign and the agents making the choice on her own? So um, these two philosophers, uh, Mealy and Rob, have tried to think about cases of that kind without any prior signs, but that still show what Frankfurt um, wanted to show with uh, the original Frankfurt cases. So here the thought is something like this. Um, well, the neuroscientist is not just waiting in the background. Right? The neuroscientist has, before the deliberation started, uh, launched some kind of process that guarantees that at the end of the day, Mary would make the choice. This is a fully deterministic process. Uh, we can imagine, for example, that there's a signal emitted uh, by the chip inside uh, Mary's brain, and that started this deterministic process that will, at the end of the day, guarantee that she makes the choice. But um, the second part of the story is um, that will only um, be active so that will only activate itself. That will only be the cause of uh, Mary's making the choice if Mary doesn't make the choice on her own. So if it turns out that um, the uh, agent's own reasons end up resulting in the choice, then uh, the deterministic process won't be the cause of the choice. It will be the agent's own process. And that agent's own process, by the way, is indeterministic. So it's not guaranteed to result in Mary making the choice on her own. But it could. And as it happens, the, uh, the example goes, it does. Uh, the indeterministic process started by the agent herself results in Mary's making the choice to lie to Susan on her own. So although the neuroscientist has already launched this, launched this deterministic process, the deterministic process never does anything because it's uh, trumped by the indeterministic process itself. So the thought is this uh, avoids the dilemma objection, but it still shows what uh, Frankfurt wanted a Frankfurt case to do, which is that the agent can act freely and be responsible because she does it on her own despite the fact that she lacks alternative possibilities, which in this case she does anyway, even if uh, it wasn't guaranteed that the indeterministic process would go to completion. It was guaranteed that she would make the choice. Um, but again, of course, <laughs> there's been some resistance, although it, it seems that this uh, case uh, avoids the dilemma of Jackson. Can I ask a, a quick yeah. question about the Mealy Rob kind of case? So, sure, as I've tried to wrap my mind around exactly what kind of causal chain the the the, the case is supposed to have, so it's like this causal preemption chain. It could we just? I don't know if this would help at all. Can, is it like a Rune Goldberg machine where somebody starts something, um, so a simple process, and then there's a causal chain that goes down um, the line? But at any point, you could you could something else could stop it. Could could we describe it in this way? Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a real world example of this kind of causal preemption that might help explain what's going on in this Mealy Rob case. Um, so the thought is that 
the so it's not like something is going to stop the deterministic process, but what could stop the causal efficacy of the deterministic process is the completion of the indeterministic process, right? So yeah. um, it's like the deterministic process is waiting in the background just to be causally efficacious. And it's really hard to think of a, of a real-life case um, of that kind. So people who work on causation have tried to think of cases. These are typically called trumping preemption cases, by the way, uh, in mm-hmm. the causation literature, um, which have um, this kind of structure, right? So there's these two processes that are started basically at the same time, uh, but one of them um, would trump the other, right? Um, if it goes uh, to completion, that by itself would guarantee that the other process would not. But, I mean, even in that literature, there's a debate about whether that actually describes um, a possible causal process. So some people would uh, yeah. accept that assumption, but other people would not, and they would try to re-describe the case in other in other terms. Like, for example, maybe both of them are causes in that kind of case. What you have just described is not possible. Right? So I, I don't want to get into the details of that <laughs> debate, but if it sounds yeah. <laughs> hard to imagine exactly what's going on inside the agent's brain uh, in order to make this a, a real possibility, it's because it really is hard. Mm. And But again, these are not cases that are necessarily supposed to describe what happens in real life. Because in real life, uh, as we said before, the factors that make the behavior inevitable typically are the same factors that result in the agent's behavior. So these are very artificial cases anyway. Yeah. Hope that helps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say that there's still some resistance. Um, uh, well, one uh, way to resist it would be to just deny the possibility of the case like y- you were doing before. But yeah. another another uh, possible uh, way to resist this would be to say, but in the case that you have just described, which perhaps does represent a real metaphysical possibility, the choice is still determined, right? What is not determined yeah. is how the choice will be brought about if by the indeterministic process or by the deterministic process. But the choice itself is determined. So some incompatibilists are likely to say, uh, but wait a minute, the agent is not responsible for uh, having made the choice. Perhaps all that she's responsible for is something like having made the choice on her own but she cannot be responsible for having made the choice if the choice was determined. And the debate continues, of course. course. This is a very lively (laughs) debate (laughs) with all sorts of moves and counter moves uh, to this date. Okay, so what are some of the main takeaways from the debate about Frankfurt cases? So why are Frankfurt cases so important to the philosophical study of free will? Right. Uh, so I think this is a question that deserves a lot more attention that has been given in the in the free will literature. So um, Frankfurt cases have uh, been, of course, very popular 
And there's been this incredibly lively debate about them. Uh, many people have, in fact, been convinced by them, and others have not been convinced. And we discussed some of the uh, reasons uh, why, uh, in particular, incompatibilists or some incompatibilists um, have um, find ways of rejecting um, the, the reasoning behind Frankfurt cases. But um, I think Frankfurt cases and the reasoning behind them is extremely important to debates about free will, even if they can be used to prove once and for all that uh, PAP is false. So I don't want to take a stand on that issue, um, but I think that even if it turns out it's impossible for a compatibilist to provide, to come up with uh, a good example of a Frankfurt case that is likely to convince or that should convince an incompatibilist, right? So even if that's impossible, um, Frankfurt cases are still important um, for debates about free will because there are different roles that Frankfurt cases play. So in addition to um, there being direct counterexamples to PAP, cases that show explicitly that we can act freely in the absence of alternatives, they can... Um, they can basically be used as a more indirect strategy to both undermine the intuitive appeal of PAP and to motivate an alternative view of free will. So we've already discussed the way in which um, Frankfurt cases can be used to uh, basically uncover PAP for what it is, which is an illusion or a mere appearance, right? And as a result, to discredit PAP or at least to um, cast some doubt on its um, initial appeal or to suggest that it shouldn't be taken seriously, right? Because uh, as we've discussed with, you know, it's just like an illusion, with the illusion with the pencil in the water where you can explain at the same time why it's fake, but why it seems that way. Here you can explain why it would have seemed so natural to think of freedom in these terms. Right? Again, because Frankfurt cases are artificially separating the actual causes of the behavior from the factors that make the behavior inevitable. And in so doing, they help identify what Frankfurt would say are the truly relevant factors, which are just the actual causes um, of the behavior. That is what mattered all along to our freedom. So in so doing, Frankfurt cases or the, um, the reasoning behind them can help uncover uh, the simpler truth that was uh, hiding behind PAP, which is that it's just the actual causes that matter. We already knew that actual causes matter to free will, by the way. Mm -hmm. right? So that's not news. Of course it matters to your freedom and responsibility um, how the particular way in which you make your choices and you perform your actions. So the actual causes matter. But what Frankfurt's reasoning is adding is this idea that that is all that matters. That, that the the picture of free will that we should believe in is the simplest possible one, according to which nothing else is required in particular. Alternative possibilities are not um, required, which, as we've discussed, results in 
much better prospects for compatibilism. Mm -hmm. Because it turns out that then all you have to look at in order to determine whether agents act freely or are responsible is the actual causes. And it might be that you don't have to look at the remote causes, right, in the remote past in combination with the laws of nature. It might be that all you have to look at is uh, whether the causal chains go through the agents themselves in the relevant kinds of ways and whether they avoid other wrong kinds of ways, such as uh, the coercion case that we described before, for example. So this is the picture that I like about free will, uh, the picture according to which all that matters is the actual causes. And I think Frankfurt cases or the reasoning behind them can uh, really help um, promote that view um, and at, at the same time that it can discredit the motivation behind uh, PAP. Does this view of free will require a different conception of, of responsibility or basic desert, or, or do you, can your view capture what we want with that with, in terms of moral responsibility? Um, no, it's not supposed to capture a different uh, view of responsibility. It's the same kind of dessert-based um, responsibility. I think that is the view of responsibility that uh, Frankfurt scenarios are working with or they can be working with. And what we're interested in capturing there is the relevant notion of freedom or the relevant notion of control that is needed for us to be generally deserving of uh, certain uh, responses, right? To be generally blameworthy or praiseworthy for what we do. Yeah. Uh, can I, I don't know what else I, <laughs> I think I should say about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the, the, the thought I had in mind was when we blame someone, we're kind of expecting something or showing that we, we say that you should have done something else. Um, instead, but on the actual sequence account where there is no alternative possibilities, uh, do they just shrug their shoulders and say, well, I, I couldn't have done anything else? Right. Uh, so that is a very different or quite different uh, kind of objection to the actual sequence views um, that you can definitely raise. And it also has to do I don't know if this is how you were thinking about it, but with the odd implies can principle, mm -hmm. right? So if you're blameworthy, um, then you ought to have done otherwise, but that requires that you could have done otherwise, right? But if you yeah. don't have alternatives, then you couldn't have done otherwise, which means that you, uh, it's not the case that you ought to have done otherwise. So then how can you be blameworthy for what you do? So, um, different actual sequence theorists respond in different ways. So uh, one common line of response is to say, uh, basically, blameworthiness itself, does not being blameworthy does not require that you ought to have done otherwise. That would be one way to respond. Another yeah. way would be to reject the odd implies can principle. Yes, yeah. you ought to have done otherwise, but... The fact that you lack alternatives is not a problem for that if uh, the odd implies can principle is itself false. And some people even use the Frankfurt cases 
as examples that allegedly show that the unimplies can principle is false. So there's different ways of responding, but um, I guess Frankfurt would say, that's just, I mean, the, when you say, well, without alternative possibilities, I can't be genuinely blameworthy for anything. You are yourself under the grip of PAP, under the illusion that that is what blameworthiness requires, the branching paths. And that illusion is something that can be explained away in the way that he suggests. So think about cases where those factors are artificially separated and think about how you feel about the agent in those cases. Well, you still feel that the agent is blameworthy. So it can't be the case that uh, blameworthiness itself requires the branching paths, if that is how we think about these cases. I hope that helps. Yeah, definitely. Somewhat. It's really hard to see outside of PAP. Mm. <laughs> I yes, think that's <laughs> what he would say. Yeah, it's such a natural part of our intuitive conception of freedom and responsibility. But it's false. <laughs> I would say. Yes. Well, thank you for discussing us this with us. Where can listeners go to follow your work? Um, sure. Um, if you go to my uh, University of Arizona webpage, uh, I think it's sartoria.arizona.edu. Mm-hmm. You can find links to all my relevant works. You can find a link to my book, Causation of Free Will, and also to um, several other papers that I have written on this topic and other related topics. So that would be the best place. Okay. Yeah. Them. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes too. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, thanks, Carolina. Um, And thank you all uh, who've listened to listening to this episode. Um, Stay tuned for the next episode in which we talk about a challenge for compatibilists, uh, the manipulation argument against compatibilism. Our guest will be Dr. Dirk Paraboom, the Susan Lynn Sage Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University. You'll want to stay tuned for that. 